Welcome back to our fourth in the series of Cisco's Healthcare Now podcast. I'm Ron Rotman. After one of the most challenging years in recent memory, recovery finally appears to be on the horizon with the deployment of the highly anticipated COVID-19 vaccines. At current time, roughly 26% of Canadians have received their first dose, which means just under 10 million people have been vaccinated. Although supply continues to grow daily and more and more people get the shot, there are still three key challenges we need to overcome around patient communications, field hospitals, and security. So what is a good approach to use technology to vaccinate an entire population quickly, safely, and efficiently? And how can we make this process easier to remove the barriers we faced at the beginning of this pandemic? Today, we have Troy Yoder joining us, who is Cisco's global healthcare lead. We'll be talking about the role technology has been playing and continues to play in the vaccine rollout, both in terms of execution and maintaining safety. Welcome to the pod, Troy. Thanks, Ron. Glad to be here. I'm excited you're here today. I always love listening to you and your angle on Cisco's healthcare initiatives and the questions you ask, but today I'm going to start with the questions. So let me ask you this. Setting the stage around vaccine deployment, last year around this time, we were setting up COVID-19 testing sites and field hospitals. Now we're in full swing of the vaccine deployment. Can you share a little bit what you've observed over the last 13 months and the role technology specifically tied around Cisco's networking and security solutions that we've played throughout it? Absolutely. And I guess what a ride it's been uh, over the last you know, 12, 14 months for all of us. Uh, I guess my answer to that would be that technology literally has led the way um, overnight. Uh, I mean, you think about for education, healthcare, and even just businesses in general, you know, connecting and securing access to the applications has really been a big challenge for a lot of organizations, a lot of uh, just people in general as well, um, particularly with the remote and underserved populations where cost and infrastructure isn't as readily available as perhaps in maybe the larger cities. Uh, and that's really been a big issue for an inclusive recovery. Uh, you know, that means primary care has been impacted, uh, screenings, uh, just surgical interventions, and a lot more just kind of had to stop. And now we're trying to get back to that normal uh, you know, mode of, of healthcare delivery. And um, it, it's been a challenge. Uh, and I think even with more technology driving the experiences we have every single day, the security of that has really never been more important. So clearly you're saying we weren't prepared for all of this. No, I don't think anybody was prepared to send uh, their workforces home overnight to, to be able to provide health care, uh, you know, literally uh, through a, a, a screen, a telephone, uh, a and some type of an application when it's really never been done that way at scale before. And looking back, what would you kind of summarize maybe the greatest challenges or barriers we had to rolling this out? Was it funding? Was it just governmental planning? Can you kind of summarize what your thoughts are around that? Yeah. So um, hard to pick a greatest challenge, to be truthful. But uh, I'm going to start with uh, the first would be the people. Uh, you know, really getting the resources, uh, the resources to staff the call centers to answer the phone calls about what, where am I supposed to go for testing? Where am I supposed to go for my vaccine? Uh, what phase am I in? I mean, we obviously had a constraint on available vaccinations. Uh, and so in order for you to be able to do that, we had to, to allocate it in certain areas. And that created a lot of confusion and really just getting the right technology available and then getting the people that can be on the other end to answer those questions and do it empathetically. Um, that would be the, the huge issue. Secondly, would be resources, real boots on the ground uh, to really deliver some of these services. And you know, technology can only go so far, but you have to get it set up. And getting that technology set up, particularly in locations that weren't ready for it, uh, when areas were in quarantines and lockdowns, made it a lot, lot harder to be able to do. 
And I think another area has been one of choice. Uh, you know, there's been so many options that everybody's had to be able to do kind of some of the same things. It's really led to some confusion, particularly among enterprises uh, that have had to react overnight. Uh, how do you basically get to the new normal where something is an, a secure enterprise standard uh, that everybody knows how to use? And you can start to build process kind of around that. Uh, and I think that's kind of a big piece. So thanks for that insight. Just shifting a little bit more focus on the technology side, you know, regardless of whether from a North American standpoint, there are some complex healthcare ecosystems in play. Um, what have you seen from a technology standpoint that's been used that we've never seen before based on what we just went through with COVID in this setting? Yeah, I, I think they, uh, the two of them, and they're, they're very much interrelated, but uh, the first one would be telehealth or, or virtual care. Let's just call it virtual care because I'll explain why in a moment. Uh, and then the second one would be the digital front door, uh, which you may not have heard that term before, but the digital front door is basically this concept that uh, we, we walk through a, a, a digital version of, of a front door instead of going to a, a retail location or a healthcare location. In some cases, you, you call, you click, you chat. There's some sort of a technology that helps you start that conversation, start that interaction, whatever it might be. Uh, and so that digital front door has probably been the two areas uh, that have really changed the most. I mean, telehealth, went from pilots where uh, in you know healthcare systems that have thousands of doctors suddenly are are, are doing it across thousands of doctors instead of like hey I have 10 that are doing telehealth and we're only doing it for a portion of the of the population on a portion of the days that they're delivering service it's gone from pilot to mass scale overnight and the digital front doors had to change right along with it so that the experience can can happen uh, when you don't walk into the to the front door of a hospital anymore you 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 do it a completely different way through technology. Well, I'm looking forward to that because I certainly hate sitting in a waiting room for my next appointment. So uh, I'm glad, you know, unfortunately this event triggered that, but uh, I'm glad that technology is here today. Just shifting a little bit more around technology. Um, where do you see tech come in to support patient communications and, and care teams as they fight things like fatigue, which they're going through now? They might not have access to equipment. Uh, they're certainly not connecting to their families. Have we seen a connectivity and an enablement that tech's provided to to ease that a little bit? Yeah, and and what we've really uh, what we've discovered is that virtual care uh, is is really the new mantra that we're we're trying to find possible ways to engage patients in their own care and do it at a distance, and that's what we're calling virtual care. That could be. Um, uh, family visitation for anybody that might be in isolation or, or an ICU. And how do I get them to be connected to back to their loved ones? How do we do inpatient rounding, which would be making sure that the doctor can access the patient and talk to the patient, provide care, but doesn't have to burn the protective equipment uh, when they walk into to the room and they're, uh, they're really able to deliver the care, but it's, it's literally three meters away from the hallway to, to the patient room. How do we make sure that, um, you know, you can see uh, babies in the NICU? Um, providing that video first type of experience. And I think that that's what's really changed the, the most is that we're a video first society now uh, in, in many ways. And that, that extends to the healthcare experience. And that it really takes us to a new level of interaction, which I th only think is going to accelerate exponentially as it becomes the more norm. Agreed. And obviously, you know, uh, people themselves can get better informed about the decision or come to their providers with more decisions, which might ease a little bit of the burden on the, the current healthcare uh, providers today in terms of empowering themselves. 
Um, we've talked a little about the network and uh, we've talked about patient communication, but what about security? What needs to be top of mind for security at these sites? And what can we do better after 13 months? Well, um, security has never been more important uh, and, and primarily because of the, the threat surface is so much broader now. Uh, we're accessing care from so many different locations and, and doctors are accessing uh, medical records from their home or even from a, a coffee shop or a mobile. You, you know, we're in a, a, a truly a healthcare anywhere from any device uh, type of, of a society. And that goes for patients, clinicians, and doctors alike. And as you have, you know, more locations where you're accessing information and more devices that you're accessing it across different types of networks, uh, the ability for bad actors to take advantage of some of those gaps in, uh, in protection when you don't have that end-to-end -end security type of model built into your processes is, is really a, a concern for a lot of healthcare organizations. Uh, and you know, when you start to add in the complexity of medical devices, uh, also being more and more of those are being connected to the networks and providing the data and telemetry in for, uh, for doctors to be able to evaluate and provide care and diagnostics. Uh, th those also have to be secured. And so we just have a lot more endpoints out there that uh, are potential uh, areas of entry, and we just need to secure against that. That's probably one of the biggest things I've seen. So Troy, there's more and more threats to security today, and I'm hearing a lot about IoT, but now we have IOMT, medical devices that are another device on the network that are susceptible to threats. What do we need to do or what can we do better to kind of ensure that that we're covering those as well. And, and and what do we need to change about our current security strategies around those? Yeah, that's the, the issue that we're seeing is one of uh, what we call flat networks um, or, or lack of segmentation, uh, where you have on a single network um, devices, mobile devices, medical devices, uh, imaging devices, you know, uh, the, the net connectivity that you have uh, of all those devices, it might be simpler to connect, but uh, a flat network is a huge uh, cybersecurity threat uh, because once you can gain access to from any one of those areas, then what you'll find is that you can have access to everything that's on that network. And so uh, your, your layer of, of protection really kind of has to extend uh, into more and more segments. And we found that segmentation and micro segmentation, particularly for medical devices, is probably one of the best uh, strategies that you can have to protect uh, the different areas. So, so let's say that you take medical devices and uh, you plug them into the network. Uh, the network has the intelligence and the automation that can be built into it so that that device can be identified. I can know exactly what operating system that device is, who makes that device, what kind of information that that device should be sending and making sure that if it if it's behaving abnormally, we can, we can put that into a sandbox for somebody to take a look at. That's the benefit of segmentation uh, and uh, what you really get with that deep packet inspection, which is a, a terminology that we use to help us understand how we can uh, see what's going on with all the endpoints in a particular network uh, and do that segmentation automatically. It's, it's really kind of automagically would be a better way of saying it these days. And so you could take your current network and just kind of add additional layers or feature sets or devices or appliances to cover this as well. And it could all be managed by a single I'll call it a single pane of glass, both your corporate IT devices, your patient IMO, IM, IOMT devices, and any type of iWatch that walks into or Apple Watch that walks into the hospital will be fully managed by one single platform. 
Yeah, it's really interesting to think when when you walk into any location, you might represent anywhere between three to five devices that need to be in, uh, connected to uh, an internet address, right? So you get an IP address. And each one of those devices has a, uh, it, it, if it's a Wi-Fi enabled device, which most everything is these days, it calls out to access points for, you know, for internet access. And as it's doing, it's providing information, fingerprints, if you will. And then that fingerprint then can be used to identify what kind of device it is. And if the network has the intelligence built, built into it, so that you have rules and, and process uh, in place for um, who can access what information from what device, what is your persona, uh, persona-based security, you have the capability of automatically segmenting, allowing access, and then not just allowing access from the device for, to everything, but really a granular type of capability to say what can be accessed from where, from whom. Uh, and that's really the, what's what's changing in network access security. Interesting. Switching gears a little bit, though, around going back to lessons learned, um, we're seeing the U.S. a little bit ahead of Canada, obviously based on supply of the vaccine. And there's a few different rollout approaches across regions, provinces, and even countries. You know, your experience in the U.S., what are some of the lessons that can be applied to the rollout in countries such as Canada uh, or other countries that are just at, at various phases or just starting the, the vaccine rollout phase? What would you say are some good lessons we learned from the U.S.? I, I would think that the most important thing is that we're all in this together. Uh, whether it be Canadians in it together uh, or North Americans in it, or, you know, even as a global society, if you take a look at what's happening in, in India and, and in Turkey, you know, where they're setting new records for, for cases in a single day uh, and they continue day after day to, to do that. Uh, the more that we have the COVID um, vaccine is not uh, in every person that it possibly can be. Uh, the more you have a potential for variants, and then the variants potentially could escape vaccines in the future. So we're we're all it's a little bit of a of a ticking time bomb if we can't get this thing under control. And I think that the uh, the inclusive recovery uh, makes sure that we have to keep um, our rural um, you know citizens uh, engaged um, and getting them information and communication. We need to find ways that you know that we can communicate with the elderly, which may not be on on a web page. That might just be a phone call. Uh, you know, there's a lot of old school technology that's still important, you know, these days. So whether it's a call, a click, a chat, a video call, whatever it might be, making sure that you're 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 meeting all the constituents that you have, where they want to be met, and and then probably the channel that they're most likely to engage in. Uh, and that way, you can make sure that this is truly an inclusive recovery. So you'd say communications and outreach and connectivity is key. Yep, and providing options. That. Yeah, for no, sure. Makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. I think they've been doing a good job so far from what I've seen. I mean, uh, they certainly rolled a few things out within three to six months, which normally take, you know, three to five years sometimes. But what, what do you feel like governments should be considering uh, doing better in terms of, app, you know, application platforms and accessibility for all citizens? You know, did they get it right? Have we learned over the 13 months? Do you need to be doing this better? Uh, I, I think that there's always room for improvement. I think that the... Um at least in the U.S., the health and human services groups uh, who, who've never really had as much technology dependency as they do right now, uh, they're learning a lot of lessons. Uh, you know, for example, some of them, they don't have electronic medical record systems here. They don't have contact centers. They don't have the ability to communicate with, uh, you know, their uh, their constituents and citizens. Uh, and it's really kind of created a, a problem. Uh, and so also they've set up some of these applications 
and then they've said, hey, these are available now. And the crush of response is taking the applications down. Yeah. And so what we're yeah. seeing is that the monitoring of those mission critical applications, especially ones that are customer or citizen facing, is really has got to be a key part of the strategy. There is so much in the cloud and across hybrid data centers right now that the visibility into how those systems are performing, it should be a, a big key uh, driver of their the actions. And um, it'd be a big improvement um, as the demand is so volatile and dynamic these days. Uh, you just don't know where your volume is going to come from. So if those are truly mission critical applications, monitoring them, knowing what's going on and getting that, that real-time um, full stack vis uh, visibility is really critical. No, I would agree. I'd agree. It's funny. I just, I, yeah, I had the vaccine myself recently, but I, I went on the site every day just to kind of see when it went available. And as each day I logged in, it was getting better and better and easier to navigate. Cause I think obviously they were taking whatever they could off the shelf. There was some unique partnerships that happened that put stuff together, but nothing was kind of made from the ground up to, to meet the needs of, you know, a quick and efficient functionality. So interesting. Interesting. Um, going forward and looking beyond the hospital walls. What role does technology play in the continuity of care beyond the pandemic? What are about areas such as 5G and contact tracing, telehealth, and generally connectivity for the community all getting back in? So 5G and what I'll also pair Wi-Fi 6 into that because the, the two technologies go hand in hand, um, particularly because of, of how 5G operates in, in, uh, in different spectrums. Uh, it is going to have some... Um, challenges in uh, highly dense environments. So Wi-Fi 6 is going to definitely play a role inside of certain buildings. And I think you'll see that the latency capabilities, the um, you know the lower latency, the higher bandwidth, we're going to see new applications. Um, you know, robotic surgery from, from far away, um, it, it really uh, real-time haptic feedback for surgeons to be able to see what's happening and how hard they're pressing in a certain area. Uh, is when you can start to think about the data that's capable of being uh, distributed uh, across large distances in, in, re in real time, I think will absolutely change uh, healthcare use cases. The point of video first, uh, you know, you have these, these, the Google Glass type of thing, even though that didn't take off as well as anybody really thought it might in the initial periods, the, the use cases and, and the, the ideas are there. And the more that we can augment that reality, I think that, that they'll have huge implications in healthcare training, uh, surgical training and, and otherwise. And so, uh, and finally, I guess the last piece would be, uh, we are truly that video first uh, type of a society and building video into everything that we do, uh, I think is going to be uh, a challenge for certain organizations that don't shift as quickly as, as they need to be to address what the new expectation is. Last question for you. What's your take on where we are today and how much additional investment we might need to build off what we have? And how long would it take to get to a point where we never have to go this, through this again uh, and we have everything set up, ready to address it, should we need to? I think that if you, if you really look at it, you would say that every business is a technology business to some extent today. And that changed overnight just along with everything else. And so the infrastructure that you need to be able to connect, to secure uh, you know, to provide the level of services that you know anyone is going to to need in in the near future, probably is going to require an infrastructure that you don't have today, and you have to think about how do I expand that business and make my my digital transformation a key part of my overall strategy. 
uh, and, and kind of take IT out of the closet or uh, out of the basement and elevate them to a strategic part of, of your organization because they're going to be driving how uh, you engage with your citizens, your patients, uh, your, your doctors, and, and everything else in the middle. So I think that we're, uh, we, we moved five to 10 years in the future in, in a period of the last 14 months, and uh, I, I don't see that pace of acceleration slowing down anytime soon. So wrapping up here, Troy, you know, just kind of any any final thoughts or anything we want to emphasize that we've talked about today that you would want to leave our listeners with? I think that we've made so many gains um, in technology adoption and just a, a benefits for patients, clinicians, doctors, citizens, that in order for us not to lose those advancements, I think we need to focus on adoption of technology. And I think that adoption takes a couple of things at the very least. And the first thing is it has to be integrated into workflows, um, whether that be the electronic medical record system or any other system that uh, people use on a daily basis. It has to match and it has to flow and it has to be easy. And I think that that's, that's critical to, to being able to take telehealth adoption as an example and make it easy for, for doctors to be able to do it right alongside the technology that they use here today. So it's just a matter of clicking a new button uh, instead of logging into another application. And then I think the second piece of that is simplicity. Uh, we have to make it simple for, for people to join meetings and simple for them to be able to use and understand how to turn video, audio, everything on and off uh, in order for telehealth experiences to work because you know patients don't have the time nor do they have the patience to be able to try to figure something out over um, you know multiple different efforts. And doctors certainly don't have the patients uh, for uh, telehealth experiences that don't work. So the fact that we use technology such as like WebRTC, where it doesn't require another download, another username, another password, or a four-page how-to document just to get set up, I think that that's probably one of the biggest things is that simplicity, integration, uh, and just focusing on the user experience uh, is the only way that we're going to make sure that we keep the gains that uh, we've had with technology adoption and uh, over the next uh, coming years. Troy, once again, thank you for joining the pod. Always great having you with us. Uh, always appreciate your insights and discussions. Thanks again. Wonderful to be here. From vaccine deployments, the expansion of virtual care, the COVID-19 pandemic has transformed our approach to healthcare over the last 13 months. We've just spoken and heard about how technology innovation has created and will continue to create opportunities to not just cope with our current challenges, but to power a better, more inclusive world in the future. This has been another episode of Healthcare Now. You can find more information about how Cisco is powering an inclusive recovery for Canada and beyond this immediate crisis at cisco.com. Thanks for listening. Till next time, I'm Ron Robin, and this has been Healthcare Now. Take care and stay safe.